from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. And you can kind of see where Scott's going. That This potentially is beneficial for more than just mental illness, but certainly the therapeutic effects are profound. Stress and depression produces a state in the brain of reduced plasticity, um, and, and antidepressants recover that. But it turns out psychedelics do it very quickly. These drugs probably will be approved at some point. I mean, just given the effect sizes that we measure in clinical trials, it's a much stronger effect than what we see with pretty much any other type of drug that we have. I'm Sarah Fenske. Even as laws around marijuana use loosen up and even get stricken from the books, psychedelic drugs remain forbidden in much of the U.S. But a bill introduced in the Missouri legislature seeks to change that. Filed by Kansas City Republican Michael Davis, House Bill 2429 would expand Missouri's right-to-try statute to include psychedelic drugs, including psilocybin, MDMA, LSD, and ibogaine. Representative Davis did not accept our invitation to talk about the issue on the air. In a press release, he said, quote, There is emerging interest and significant clinical research supporting the safety and efficacy of psychedelic drugs for PTSD, traumatic injury therapy, and numerous other conditions. Representative Davis is right about that. In fact, some of that research is taking place now at Washington University School of Medicine. Yesterday, our producer Jane Mather Glass spoke with Scott. He's a WashU undergrad who recently participated in that research. He told her he'd been interested in participating since he'd previously had positive experiences with psychedelics. But when Scott took psilocybin as part of the study, he had a different, more introspective experience. I took the psilocybin with a bit of tea, and I had a couch to lay on and listen to music to and just go through the experience. So maybe an hour later, I went to the MRI, and during the MRI, I, I've never experienced this before in psychedelics, but I, I did feel like a, a very real sense of oneness with the world and like the universe and beforehand I had written written goals like it's part of the procedures and I didn't think I thought it would be difficult even though I've I've taken psychedelics before I wasn't really sure that those goals would be achieved but I answered like personal conflicts and questions I had and resolved them and it was a very useful and like beneficial experience for me. And Scott added that his experience has continued to have an effect on his daily life. Then in the following week, and still now, I felt very much more calm and at peace with my daily life. The small conflicts that arise, I understand and accept them. More so now, I'm, I'm definitely less bothered by little inconveniences that I didn't really know even stressed me out before until I realized that I wasn't being stressed by them. 
So that is Scott. He's a student at Washington University who recently took psychedelics in a controlled environment. That's part of research being done by the university's medical school. We're only using Scott's first name because of the stigma of using Schedule One drugs, even if that's just for research. And joining us now to talk more about how this research works and why are two of the people leading it. Dr. Ginger Nickel is an associate professor of psychiatry and a researcher in the Healthy Mind Lab at Washington University School of Medicine. Dr. Nickel, welcome. Thank you. And we're also joined today by Dr. Josh Siegel. He's a psychiatry resident at WashU School of Medicine and a researcher in the Healthy Mind Lab. Dr. Siegel, welcome. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So, Dr. Siegel, what first got you interested in researching psychedelics? Uh, let's see. Um, I think that, you know, uh, I remember during my PhD, so this would have been six years ago or seven years ago, um, you know, as a graduate student would often do sitting at their desk, uh, going on a deep dive tangent. <laughs> and, you know, I, I don't remember what sparked it, to be honest, but um, a deep dive into this, I guess what now is kind of called the renaissance of psychedelics research and uh, looking at some of these studies like... Um, you know, there was this landmark study in 2006 that I guess you could say started it um, from Hopkins um, in which they just basically uh, had folks take psychedelics in their controlled environment and you know, measured all these various aspects of their experience, of their personality. Um, and it's just kind of an incredible uh, study. And, and since then, it was this gradual, I guess you could say, snowball uh, of loosening of, well, maybe not loosening, but um, more interest in kind of mainstream research. And, and then I think probably the thing that actually tipped uh, the balance for me, I was doing uh, brain imaging research, was there was uh, brain imaging studies that, that were coming out around that time, which were the first brain imaging studies of uh, participants while they were on uh, LSD and psilocybin. And so, you know, that I think that was the, the first thing that, you know, just seeing these, these results, I mean, uh, you know, uh, you can, there's obviously lots of writing about psychedelics, you know, I read The Doors of Perception, um, but seeing it, and maybe this is my own bias, but seeing it in, in a, research, a controlled research study and seeing these pretty amazing experiences and personality changes um, really was kind of a, a turning point for me. It's interesting. I remember decades ago reading about how Cary Grant used to take LSD with his therapist. This was in the 1950s, and, and this was something that he was doing as, as part of marriage counseling, and he thought it had really good impacts. At the time, it seemed so shocking. Like, it was almost this joke, like, they did LSD as, as part of research. But there is this long history of this that, as you say, there, there's kind of this renaissance going on now where researchers are again taking this seriously. Yeah, there's this there's this whole body really of research from what you know, seventy years ago now, uh, sixty seventy years ago that uh, almost has been buried. Um, I mean, there was clinical trials with psychedelics for alcohol addiction. There was study, you know, all kinds of research, and and it just got shut down basically, and nobody said anything about it or or gave it much attention for about, you know, 30, 40 years. 
So Dr. Nickel, for Dr. Siegel to do this work that he became interested in doing, that needed somebody like you to, to give it its blessing. Were you a, a little nervous at first? Like, hey, we're talking about psychedelic drugs here. It's a great question. I mean, I think, you know, whenever we try to do something new, you're always really cautious. Um, I'm a clinical trialist, which basically means I design studies and conduct them to try and measure outcomes associated with treatments. And so there are all these things that you have to think about that have to do with regulatory um, concerns. And with a Schedule One drug, there are some complicated things you have to do to be able to have the, the setup to do it safely. Um, and then there's training, of course, with um, how, how do we facilitate these sessions. So what Scott was talking about preparing, the, that's all guided. That's all part of a protocol that we learn um, to be able to help people have the most effective therapeutic experience. And then we test the outcome. In this case, the outcome is seeing what's going on in the brain while, um, while people are having the experience and trying to understand the mechanism by which psilocybin and potentially other psychedelics have these really transformational effects. Um, we, we have some ideas about how that happens, but that's really, I think, where the combination of clinical trials, experience, and expertise in neuroscience can really be powerful. And so I think it's been a great partnership, and we're really excited about this growing program. And Josh is going to be joining the faculty this summer, and he will sort of take it take it on and move it forward, and it's really neat to see. So, Dr. Siegel, you mentioned these brain scans, uh, MRIs, that, that are being done on people while they're, they're taking these drugs or, or soon yeah. thereafter? Yeah, yeah, while, wow. before, during, after, yes. And so what do they show? Well, I... I feel like I can't uh, really answer that because we're still collecting and, and analyzing the data. I mean, you know, certainly um, while somebody is acutely, you know, on the drug, under the influence of the drug, uh, there are pretty substantial and profound changes in, you know, the main thing that we look at, I guess I should back up. The main thing we, we're looking at, which is kind of something that Washington University is uh world experts in is is what we call functional connectivity. And so it's a scan where somebody is in the scanner and they're uh, essentially just at rest and their mind is wandering um, and you're measuring actively similarly to, you know, what you'd be doing in a fMRI or when you, you know, when somebody's doing a task. But instead of doing a task, they're just, like I said, laying in the scanner and you're measuring continuous neural activity and you can, and you can use that in order to actually um, – measure brain networks, measure how much different areas of the brain are communicating with each other. And, and, uh, and you know, as I said, WashU has been really an incredible place to be because there have been, um, you know, uh, I don't want to start name dropping because I could go for a long time and I'll leave people out. But, but I do want to say, you know, uh, Mark Rakel has been a leader and then, and then uh, Nico Dosenbach and Tim Lauman um, have really pioneered this approach of uh, and others, of course, of of taking an individual human subject, uh, putting them in the scanner multiple times. So our protocol is pretty intense. You're going in the scanner basically every other day for a month, and uh, and by doing that, we can get you know an individual um, human connectome fingerprint and know exactly what your brain networks look like. And that way, when you uh, go through this treatment. And afterwards, we can actually really tell with a high precision 
how are uh, communication between brain networks changing? Hmm. You know, what's the immediate effect? What's the persisting effect after the drug is out of your system? Um, and, you know, in the weeks after, as Scott was talking about. Um, so that's the big thing that we're, that we're really interested in from a and neuroscience standpoint. And Scott talked about this from the emotional aspect of this, that this had been good for him and, and was sort of changing how he thought about life. Are you looking at that in this study as well? We do. And, and by the way, uh, you know, Scott, uh, that was very eloquently said. <laughs> <laughs> he, he did. It. I mean, he makes it sound like this is a very valuable thing to do. Um, yeah, yeah. So we, you know, we also collect, um, you know, surveys. And, and that's another thing that uh, Hopkins has really been a leader. They, they were kind of have really been at the front of, um, you know, leading this um, renaissance. And and so they've created these tools to measure the, both the immediate effect, or not immediate, but the you know the uh, experience while under the influence of the drug. And then, of course, there's all these you know um, uh, assessments that we use of uh, mood and of behavior afterwards. So hearing from Scott talk about his experience, um, this was something good. I imagine this might not necessarily be good for everybody. Dr. Nickel, how do you go into these studies making sure you're finding somebody where this isn't going to just freak them out? It's a great question. And I think that was part of what, you know, we really paid close attention to as we were designing the current study that we're running was how will we keep people safe? We need to understand the drug and the pharmacology. Um, but we also need to understand a little bit about the people who are coming in and what their experiences have been like. One of the strongest predictors of a quote-unquote bad trip in um, research is actually being in an MRI scanner. And so to try and, you know, get past that to really, you know, not have any adverse things happen, yeah. um, we, we decided to recruit people who had already had a psychedelic experience and knew what that was like and knew what to expect. Mm -hmm. And then with all the imaging that sort of is on the front end before you have your drug experience in our study, that was sort of like practice. And so I think it has worked out well. Um, but that was one thing that we weren't anticipating we would, you know, be able to do. And it has been sort of interesting. People are much more willing to talk about what their experiences have been like. But it is really true that, you, you know, using it recreationally and using it therapeutically, those are different experiences. And people can have profound experiences when they're using it recreationally. But it really depends on how you enter the experience, what your mindset is, what you're thinking about, where you are. So all the crazy stories you hear of people like taking their clothes off in public and throwing away all their money at a concert, um, those things definitely happen. But if you can prepare people, as Scott was saying, we give them some questions, we do some preparation work with them. Um, and in this study, it's not a, a mentally ill population. It's a perfectly healthy population that doesn't have any psychiatric stuff. And you can kind of see where Scott's going, that this potentially is beneficial for more than just mental illness, but certainly the therapeutic effects are profound. And, and these are, we do, we consider them medicines. We do need to take a quick break, but we'll be back shortly to continue this conversation. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio.
Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at choosewood.com. Welcome back. We're talking today about the use of psychedelics and mental health treatments and the research being done here in St. Louis at Washington University. My guests are a part of that. And they are Dr. Josh Siegel, who's a psychiatry resident at the WashU School of Medicine, as well as Dr. Ginger Nickel. She's an associate professor of psychiatry and a researcher in the Healthy Mind Lab at Washington University School of Medicine. So Dr. Nickel, you referred, you referenced earlier the fact that you are dealing with these drugs that are not necessarily easy to get in terms of hoops you have to jump through, in terms of regulations, stuff like this. What does the federal government currently say about the kind of studies that, that you guys are doing? It's, I mean, it's really, I think, you know, this, because of this renaissance, certainly, you know, we, we have more studies that we can measure really, you know, significant treatment effects. And that has led to um, companies, mostly nonprofit that are working on developing a clinical trial network so that they can go through all of the phases of getting an FDA approval. That process means that you have to actually meet with the FDA and talk with them. Hmm. Um, There are three phases of approval, phase one, two, and three. Three is where you end up with um, results that the FDA then looks at to decide how how it will approve, what it will approve it for. Um, and so right now, there are two companies in the U.S. that have FDA approval to be uh, manufacturers of um, the, the actual drug. And they are getting ready to either start or are in the middle of phase three clinical trials for depression. So this is a reality. These drugs probably will be approved at some point. I mean, just given the effect sizes that we measure in clinical trials, it's a much stronger effect than what we see with pretty much any other type of drug that we have. Interesting. So a pill that is has been acceptable for the last 20 years to take, you're finding better results with this thing that, that maybe has some stigma. It, certainly. That, that is the way that some of the published research is looking, yes. Wow. I want to go to the phone lines. Jerry is calling from O'Fallon, Missouri. Um, Jerry, hi. You're on St. Louis on the Air. Good afternoon. Uh, I've actually been following this for a little bit longer than the – it's been kind of in the mainstream media for a couple of years. But uh, I'm really glad that, you know, all of these uh, all of these drugs were so – maligned by the propaganda that came out of the war on drugs starting in the late 60s that uh, even today most people's knee-jerk reaction sounds like something you uh, would hear Jack Webb say on Dragnet, mm-hmm. but um, especially when it comes to uh, end-of-life situations uh, and, and depression, some of the things that I've read are just... Um, well, I won't, I won't say mind-blowing, but I just did. It's, <laughs> it's such a change, and uh, I'm glad to see that we're finally breaking out of that, that, uh, uh, that mold. Yeah, Jerry, thank you for sharing that thought. Jerry mentioned specifically this, this end-of-life care. I know this has been an issue where, where people feel like this has real promise. Dr. Siegel, do you, is that something you can speak to? Well, um, two of the you know, early clinical trials that came out were with um, psilocybin for... Uh, depression and anxiety surrounding uh, terminal cancer diagnosis and end of life. And, and that was, you know, they both had these very large uh, benefits 
and not only you know depression, anxiety, kind of fear of death and, mm-hmm. and um, psychology surrounding that, um, but you know results that lasted they showed for months, six months a year. Um, so you know all I I guess I can only speak to it as far as my knowledge of the literature, but yeah, it certainly has been a pretty promising result so far. So if you start asking people who use psychedelics about their use of psychedelics, they, they certainly have a lot to tell you about it. Um, it's, you know, obviously a very meaningful experience. But do we know um, from what we're looking at in the brain why these things work the way that they work and, and what they're doing that produces that benefit for people? So we certainly don't know the whole answer, which is why we're doing what we're doing. Um, but, you know, one thing I will say and, and also part of what has gotten me excited about psychedelics is, is this idea of that they are powerful neurotrophic agents. So, uh, you know, it turns out that one of the big kind of exploding areas of research in psychiatry is, has been this discovery that um, antidepressants and even some other uh, psychiatric drugs uh, stimulate plasticity in the brain and stimulate formation of new uh, synapses. So not only that, but actually stress and depression produces a state in the brain of reduced plasticity. So um, the brain is, you could say, less less malleable. Um, and, and antidepressants recover that, stimulate, uh, particularly in emotional areas, you know, the limbic system, so the hippocampus, amygdala, um, parts of the frontal cortex. Um, and, and so that's actually true of basically across the board of all antidepressants. Hmm. Um, but it turns out that psychedelics um, do that and do it very quickly, uh, like within a day or two. So ketamine actually was kind of the first drug that was, reali- you know, was discovered that here's a rapid uh, neurotrophic agent, an agent that rapidly stimulates the formation of new synapses. Um, and psilocybin and, and psychedelics subsequently you know, were discovered to do that, to be rapid neurotrophic agents as well, and even to a, a larger degree than ketamine and with effects that seem to last longer, you know, in the order of weeks, hmm. months um, than ketamine. Interesting. I want to play something else that Scott told us when he talked to our producer, uh, Jane Mather Glass. He shared this about how his experience in this study has continued to affect him. Music was a large part of the experience because I was listening to music throughout and I had like this musical motif that my brain created for me and that was stuck in my head um, throughout a lot of the experience and afterward. So I make music like for fun in a band. So I'm going to use that a musical motif and other inspiration from that experience to like create new music and new art. And that, again, is Scott, an undergraduate who has participated in this research. Dr. Siegel, does... I'm sorry to cut you off. I want to say just to back Scott up here that he actually played the, the, I guess you could say, you know, he called it a motif, that... Because he he went home and recorded it and played it for us and it sounded good. So I'm <laughs> good music is coming. It sounded out of good. This. Yeah, I'm excited to hear it's what legit. he what yeah. he creates from it. <laughs> it does that make sense that it would maybe unleash that sort of creativity or more that it would help create patterns? Like what what is what do you think is happening there? 
I mean, that's really an excellent question. And that's something that, um, you know, until now, you know, we can put people in a scanner, we can look at what's happening in their brain in real time. But a lot of the early studies that reported some of these effects that um, Scott described were done in the 60s. They were observational studies. People would come in and there's one study, if you are interested um, uh, in looking it up, it's sort of in the 60s, but it was really people coming in. They had to be experts in their field. They had to have a credential or the job that pays them to do that expert thing and a problem that felt unsolvable. And so once they met those criteria, they went through the experience and afterwards, they were interviewed about what was it like. Um, and there were architects, and this was done in California, so the very beginning of Silicon Valley, you know, and computer development. Um, and these folks, pretty much without exception, came in saying, the solution presented itself inside my head. And I didn't even need to write it down. It's just there. Um, and so it's a pretty profound experience, but I think that sort of speaks to just, you know, what Josh was talking about, which is this is really changing people's brains and in a positive way. It's, it's promoting growth. Um, it's helping new synapses form, new connections, new networks. And so that's actually what happens when you solve problems and you master something. And mastery is a really important part of recovery and mental health. Um, but now I think, you know, you're seeing so much burnout across, you know, sectors, certainly in healthcare. And burnout is basically what happens when problems become unsolvable, mm -hmm. right? And so we have a really huge societal need for medicines like this that can help people. And it's really, you know, it's also you learning about yourself. So it's not just a simple, let's pop a pill and get better. It's really what kind of work can we help you do and how can we help it be as effective as possible? We also heard from Irene. She was calling from Maryland Heights, and, and she called in to share that she's been on psychedelic drugs for 30 years. She says it's helped with PTSD, helped with other health issues much more than psychotropic drugs, the kind of you know classic pill that you would take to deal with, with issues in your brain. She says that using psilocybin for mental health benefits is a no-brainer, no-brainer that this does not need to be a debate. Do you feel like as there's a growing body of people who are in these studies and, and they're seeing the effects of this, they're going to be become advocates pushing for this. I mean, we're already seeing some states start to, Oregon, I should say one state, has moved towards decriminalizing. Well, uh, I'm glad you you brought that up because, you know, it probably is worth saying, um, given all this praise that we're giving <laughs> to psychedelics, that, that uh, people have negative subjective experiences. Some people who do these, do these drugs, uh, even in the, you know, so uh, I guess the way that we, you know, our protocol, the way it's set up is in many ways set up, of course, to for safety, but also to maximize the likelihood of a positive experience. Mm -hmm. But even still, people, some percentage, a minority, but some percentage have a uh, very scary experience or, you know, anxiety or paranoia as a result of the drug. And that percent, by the way, goes up. Um, considerably, you know, when you're talking about people using the drug in an uncontrolled setting or, or at home. And so, I mean, and that's, I think, unavoidable in some mm -hmm. ways. I mean, we certainly haven't found any clear way to 
avoided. To stop that. You know, Michael Pollan, who has been writing about this lately, the great journalist, he wrote in 2019, quote, the history of psychedelics has been marked by periods of both irrational exuberance and equally irrational stigmatization. He argued, and this is before Oregon had its, its big vote to decriminalize this, that we need more research before states plow ahead with this, that this is something that might make sense in a controlled environment. But perhaps what triggered this initial backlash uh, that, that shut this down for years is that maybe people can't be trusted to dose themselves. I'm not hearing an argument from either of you on that. Well, and I, I mean, he's right. It, I, Michael Pollan came and gave a talk, actually, right after he published his book uh, here. And I think that that's actually, I mean, it's a problem in psychiatry in general that we tend to think about things as magic bullets. When we find something that works, we try it with everything. Um, but it's also true that the drugs that we use to treat things can also you know, have side effects, right? And they can be unhelpful to people. And one of the big tasks of the, you know, next century moving forward is going to be precision medicine. How do we identify who is going to respond best to what type of medication and when? And so I think that's kind of where we're going with this research is to try and understand who it works best for and what is the ingredient that we manipulate to make it better for a certain thing than another. So, right, your preparation, the the psychotherapy, that's kind of what a lot of people think is the, the main ingredient that if we modify, if we get the dose correct, we get the safety correct, we could actually have a lot of different you know, potential uses for this. Um, and so the FDA approval, the indication um, that people have been talking about is it's medication-assisted psychotherapy. Hmm. So it's a very different way of thinking about medications that are prescribed, that you would have, there would be a whole um, you know, set of protocols around what what are you using this for? Okay, there's a different way that we think about preparing you for the experience then. We do have another caller. We don't have time to take it, but she wants to know if, if uh, you guys have considered studying the relationship therapy aspect, that these drugs can help with empathy building and perspective taking. Is that something that you've considered or, or seen much research on? I will let Dr. Nichol answer that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, certainly this is something that I mean, it's another really important potential use is how how do we help people relate to one another better? How do we help people who are in intimate relationships with one another have the most fruitful relationship that they can have? And so I think this is another example of a, a an area where if we can titrate a part of this to really target that, then it's potentially going to be helpful for that. Because if you're thinking about neurotrophic, you know, effects and new connections, new connections are important for everything that you learn. Mm -hmm. And so any type of therapy where you're learning how to do something differently, and especially behaviors that have to do with emotional states, then I think it absolutely could potentially be effective. So, Dr. Nichol, there is one last thing I wanted to make sure to ask you about today. We started by talking about this right to try bill that's proposed in the Missouri legislature, was also proposed last year, didn't really go anywhere. Do you think this is a a good step here? Um, Would it help get psilocybin in the hands of people who could benefit from it? It's a great question. And just to, you know, give full disclosure, we haven't been following it as carefully as we might have otherwise. We only really recently learned about the legislation being Uh, put forward. And one of the things that we always have to say is, right, like our opinions are our opinions. They don't reflect the opinions of WashU or other places or people. Um, But I think that 
you know, with the legislation that I'm familiar with, I think the important thing is that it, it decriminalizes both for patients and for doctors. Um, but I think there are some missing pieces and, and there's more information that we need to be able to help guide people who want to do this, physicians who maybe don't have a background in this and how can we help them do it better. There are still some things we need to understand. And I think there's also some practical things too as well. Um, you know, laws will have to contend with the issue of getting Schedule One licensure and then access. So right now, as, as some of the legislation is written, um, you would have to actually go to a company that has FDA permission to manufacture the drug and that it also has to have past phase one, which is safety. Mm -hmm. And so this doesn't apply to people who are getting it through the mail or a, a source that's sort of, you know, like, quote unquote, on the streets. So I think that absolutely we need to decriminalize this as much as possible and increase awareness, people's understanding of what it can potentially do. But we also have to balance that with we need to be able to standardize things and monitor safety and make sure people can have access to the same thing that everybody else is getting effect with. Well, you guys have both done a great job today um, in terms of helping bring awareness to the research that is going on on this. This has been so interesting to listen to. Uh, Dr. Ginger Nickel, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having us. And Dr. Nickel is an associate professor of psychiatry and researcher in the Healthy Mind Lab at Washington University School of Medicine. And Dr. Josh Siegel, thank you. Thank you very much for having us. It's been fun to be here. And Dr. Siegel is a psychiatry resident at the WashU School of Medicine, also a researcher in that Healthy Mind Lab. This episode was produced by Jane Mather Glass with audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. If you learned something new from today's episode, consider leaving us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the easiest way to help people discover our show. We appreciate it. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.